Stranger Still podcast, the music episode. Uh, it is just me today. My name is Miles. My wife, Kathleen, who's normally with us on the Stranger Still podcast, she is on a celebratory voyage through the state of the rising sun. She's at a bachelorette party in Arizona. Um, but I've been meaning to do this episode anyway for a while. It's just a just an amalgamation of all the work that I've done on the music of Stranger Things. As Kathleen and I did 25 episodes, 25 rewatch episodes uh, from Stranger Things 1, 2, and 3 ahead of Stranger Things 4, which comes out Friday, uh, part 1 and part 2, of course, in, in July. So this is just about the music. And it's one of the things that got me into the show you know, obviously the actors, the characters, the great writing, you know, is, is there. The music doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, but, but you know, it all fuses together. Um, Stranger Things, you know, is nothing if not well made. Um, so take an hour, hang out with me, talk music. The structure of this episode will be, first we're going to talk trailers, season four trailer especially. Um, then uh, top ten soundtrack moments, you know, for example, the like popular song usages um, in Stranger Things. I didn't talk that much about that through the rewatch. I mostly focused on the score. Uh, and then this episode will end with my top ten score moments. Emphasis on moments. I didn't want to just go give a list of the most famous tracks. You know, I wanted to really rate on the score itself being specifically used. So tune on to this. Season four is almost upon us. Follow us on Twitter at StrangerStill22 or check out the 25 episodes uh, on Spotify, Apple, Anchor where we rewatched Stranger Things 1, 2, and 3. Welcome in. Let's begin. Let's start with the trailers. Uh, trailer for season one, two, three, and four. My producer, Obi-Wan, says, got to give the people what they want. Got to give them a little taste of season four. Of course, Obi-Wan is a dog, not a producer, so he may have just been wanting a treat. But his point stands. Going back to season one, the trailer, which did get me to watch the show, but now looks ridiculous. It is absolutely insane that they put out the first trailer without a hint of the wonderful analog, dusty synthesizer music track that is really the oxygen of Stranger Things. L listen to the listen to the first like twenty seconds of this trailer here. Something is coming. Something hungry for blood. What is it? The oh. Demogorgon. Oh. We're deep shit. <laughs> Now we have to go. Later. Get those strings, those those building sustaining strings. Oh, the, the chimes. Very eighties, very John Williams. Wanna be John Williams. And the call for Will. It was really marketed very specifically as like a tribute to the Spielbergian Stephen King movies. And, you know, and, and that, of course, ended up being true. But without the great music, it sounds completely wrong. It's like this, this like pure nostalgia trip. And I've always been a, a, a proponent and I kind of beat that drum that 
Stranger Things is not pure nostalgia. It is something else. It is something of its time, uh, specifically our, the time that we're living in now. Presumably some marketing guys took some shit for that, but Stranger Things 1 becomes a cultural sensation. Stranger Things 2 is highly anticipated, and the trailer doesn't disappoint. It may be one of the best moments uh, for Stranger Things in terms of just overall cultural zeitgeist is when the Stranger Things 2 trailer dropped at Comic-Con and it had the song, Thriller by Michael Jackson. They said it had to knock your socks off. It did knock your socks off. I mean, if you have a show about the 50s, you need Elvis. You have a show about the 60s, you need the Beatles. You have a show about the 80s, you need Michael Jackson. Nothing's going to go back to the way that it was. Not really. I saw something. What is it? I don't know. I felt it. Everywhere. Ooh, I just love how it, you're not quite sure what it is at first. Maybe that's one of the reasons they started it with that riff. You know, that um, that, that riff. Because, I mean, that is like, I think if before this trailer, if you would ask somebody like, hey, hey, sing, sing the Thriller song. Before this trailer hit at Comic-Con, if you're like interviewing people ahead of time and say, hey, just sing Thriller for us, they'd probably go, ba-dum-bum-bum-bum-bum. But um bum 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 bum, or they would do the horn hits, bana bana na, or even they would even so the guitar part, you know, the the synth part, that is like not the part you'd think, but it does make sense for Stranger Things, doesn't it? And, uh, of course, we get Vincent Price in there, and th it's just, uh, they did so much to make sure this happened. Um, there's some great articles about the push that they had to do to sell the estate of Michael Jackson, that this is uh, good for you, too. Like, we need this. We know you don't do this, but we need it. Um, I mean, it's notably missing from the soundtrack, probably part of the deal that they, you know, they had to make to, to push for this. Stranger Things 2, of course, also a hit. Now, there's two years between Stranger Things 2 and Stranger Things 3. Now, I know the audience that I'm currently talking to being like, oh, only two years and not three plus years? You know, give me a break. But still, two years is a lot, especially conditioned as we are as, as television fans, quote-unquote television, to getting a season every year. So as the trailer approached for Stranger Things 3, everyone's like, well, how can you top Michael Jackson? I mean, what, are you going to get Bruce Springsteen, Prince, and Madonna to, like, you know, do a, a trio or something like that? How can you top Michael Jackson for 80s appropriateness? And in season three, they go with a stunning choice. You could not top Thriller, is the answer. So go in a completely different direction to The Who, The Who's Baba O'Reilly, a song from 1971 goes it's 14 years before our setting this is not 
a synthesizer. It is an organ on like marimba repeat. A lot of people think it's their first time hearing a synthesizer. So we start off a lot breathier, a lot of breathier than the real song. That makes sense, though, and for a trailer. Got to keep room for dialogue. I get my back into my a choir that is not at all present in the original. So the remix kind of delays the the hook a little bit. Bomb, bomb, bomb. You know, uh, they delay that a little bit. And when it comes, it's not, you know, the piano like the original song. It's, it's more bassier, more Stranger Things appropriate. Just for fun, just want to want to toggle over to what the the original song does. That organ much more prevalent, but these drums, these are missing from the trailer. Oh, I love Keith Moon. Yeah, he's, he's missing from the trailer. But as it goes on, it becomes apparent why this song was chosen. Because we're not kids anymore. We're teenagers. And it's summer. And there's drama. And we're not going to cry. This is just an awesome buildup that is really not in the song. The bridge in the real song is, is not as good as this. So we're missing Keith Moon on the drums, but we get this epic bridge a fair trade. All right, let's go to season four trailer. What could they possibly do this time, having already done Michael Jackson, having already pulled from the, uh, the previous decade to do The Who? Well, they, they bring in a really appropriate song, Journeys separate ways, parentheses, worlds apart. So you can hear some modulation on there. Interesting that they're changing the synthesizer kind of cheesy synthesizer riff into a piano riff again it's a lot spacier a lot breathier using some of those stranger things sounds that we that we know well all of it that makes sense of course Let's toggle again. Let's go to the Journey version so you can hear, first of all, the contrast between the piano sound that they chose here uh, over what the actual song is and how prominent the guitar is in the, in the actual song. Yeah. 
So not only the the kind of main riff, but also the kind of the percussive part. Stranger Things 4, of course, they've darkened it up a bit, probably because Stranger Things 4 is going to be dark. Um, but also to preserve that moment in the trailer where we see somebody on a guitar in the upside down just blasting. Instead of having the guitar in the intro, we build to it in, in what is the... the um, best part of the trailer for me. Feels like they took guitar out of everything just for that moment. I love how crazy the drums are going there. Very big, boom, ba 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 boom. Very epic, uh, and we also get that kind of um, what I affectionately called the just the upside down honking, you know, <laughs> that we get uh, quite often during the series from from Stranger Things one, two, and three. Um, I love the way that Thriller, Baba O'Reilly, and Separate Ways the remixes incorporate some of the Dixon Stein sounds into it and often with the thriller baba o'reilly and separate ways uh trailers they've really un 80s <laughs> those songs so let's get into our two top 10 segments i have planned for you here uh the first top 10 is top 10 soundtrack moments of stranger things one two and three we'll count down from 10 to one um and then we'll do top 10 score moments. And when I'm talking about moments, I really am looking to pair the usage of the, of the song or the uses of the, of the score track, as, as we'll get to on the next one, the usage of the song with everything else. You know, the, the, the visuals, the characters, the performance, the, the writing, the, the place that we as an audience feel. Because these things don't just exist in a vacuum. You don't want to hear me rank the best songs, you know, as if I was just going through an iTunes playlist and telling you number 10 to 1. No, this is about how they're used and in the context of the show. All right, let's begin. Obi-Wan, I need like a, like a sound graphic or something to, you know, number 10. Maybe I could just do it on my own. Um, so the first top 10 list is the soundtracks, top 10 popular songs used in Stranger Things 1, 2, and 3. I'm going to count down from 10, and we're going to start right at the beginning. Number 10, Jefferson Airplane, White Rabbit. This song used uh, in the very first episode, Chapter 1, Season 1, The Vanishing of Will Byers. This comes right as the quote-unquote child services officer uh, arrives to Benny's diner to pick up Eleven. Turns out it's somebody from the lab. She shoots Benny. Eleven escapes. Hey, can I help you? Hi, you must be Benny Hammond. I'm afraid I am. I'm afraid we're close for the evening, too. Should try back tomorrow morning. Connie Frazier, social services. Ah, social services. My apologies. I didn't expect you so soon. It's a heck of a drive. Not Notice the song is yeah. on the radio. Yeah, I told her that you were coming yet. I didn't want to run off. Yeah. She's a dead skittish. 
Children I work with usually are. Right. Pay attention to how the song goes from the radio to the true soundtrack when Benny meets his untimely end here. Sorry again for trying to turn you away there. It's fine. You know, it's funny. Your, uh, your voice it sounds different. <laughs> All the fighting here. We don't see it, but Eleven kills two men here. And Brenner goes out to see that she has vanished into the woods. Could not be a more 60s song than White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. Um, in a series you surely described to your friends as like pure 1980s nostalgia, dude. It's interesting that one of the climactic moments of the first episode is Jefferson Airplane, White Rabbit. And it seemed like an odd choice. It's really more of a literary reference than anything, uh, more than a reference to the summer of love, man. Uh, Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. Um, is what inspired the song White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. Uh, and not to say Eleven's story is like pure Alice in Wonderland, but as far as this point, venturing out into an unknown world, you know, filled with all sorts of new characters and wild things and adventure and joy and fear, like that is kind of what Eleven is doing. Um, and, and in this case, unlike Alice, Eleven is bringing the magic rather than being awed by it, but this was a fantastic song choice in the first episode. All right, so I guess I'll just kind of... I don't know exactly how to end each one. Obi-Wan, just hit me with the graphic. Number nine. All right, number nine from... Let's pivot from what is a dark moment for Eleven running off into the woods as a frightened little girl um, to one much later and happier. Season three... Episode two, The Mall Rats, the use of Cold as Ice by Foreigner when Eleven it dumps your ass, Mike. You lie. Why do you lie? Sounds of the bus providing the contrast to the ear candy coming our way soon. I dump your ass. Honorable mention to the wonderful accompaniment by that bus. Um, but I love this. Uh, I dump your ass moment. Eleven takes the step she needs to take. She's not a pet. You know, I dump your ass. Part of the humor, of course, is that Eleven doesn't really realize how cold this was or <laughs> that this isn't really how you would dump somebody. You know, she doesn't have the, we should just be friends. It's not me. It's you. This isn't working. I'm leaving you. We should break up. You know, she doesn't have any of those niceties. In fact, the only time she ever even heard of this, that's even possible to break off a relationship is from Max when she said, you know, then you dump his ass. It's part of what makes Cold as Ice so funny, too, is that we know Eleven's not truly trying to be so cold. She just, <laughs> at a certain level, thinks this is how it's done. The snap right into it, too, is funny. Just listen to it again, how quickly it comes after her. I dump your ass. Oh, 
Fantastic. Or let's stick in season three. Obi-Wan hit me with the sound. Number eight. We'll Meet Again by Vera Lynn. Chapter four of season three, The Sauna Test. This is after Eleven and Billy and the, and the party. They have this crazy battle inside of the sauna. Uh, they were going to test to see if Billy is really infected by the flare or not. He breaks out. They have this huge fight. Eleven throws him through a brick wall, and he survives. One of the keys, this song ends the episode. And a reason that it hits so differently is because the whole rest of the episode is score. This is the only song in the entire chapter. And so it, it hits differently. We'll meet again. The girl, was it her? Besides the obvious implication that Eleven and the Mind Flayer will meet yet again in another battle, this also gets like this sing-along chorus with this timeless song, along with the reveal that the the mind flare has flayed a number of people. Not that they were singing along; they're just sitting there in a catatonic state in in front of the meat flare. Um, Vera Lynn, this is definitely the oldest song that is used in Stranger Things. We'll Meet Again, recorded in 1939, you know, became famous um, during World War II. She's an English singer, um, you know, and it was, We'll Meet Again was obviously a major sentiment with, the, uh, with that population of, of young people during World War II. Most young men and women were separated by the war. Um, so this song, you know, had... Uh, it's also famous with the next generation, too. A more cynical usage, 1964, the movie classic Dr. Strangelove. This song plays over a nuclear holocaust. So this song's been around. This song's been around. Amazingly, Dame Vera Lynn was alive when this episode aired in 2019. She was 22 when she recorded this song in 1939. She was 102 when Stranger Things 3 dropped on the 4th of July in 2019. Sadly, she did die in 2020 at 103 years old. Um, no other way to pivot out of that one, Obi-Wan, other than to move to number seven. And we go to season one, chapter three, Holly Jolly, the opener. While Nancy loses her virginity and Barb is eaten alive by what we find out is a Demogorgon in the upside-down pool, we hear the creepiest, ambientist, upside-down music flipping back and forth with Hazy Shade of Winter by the Bangles. Nancy? Gonna flip back and forth here a couple times. So 
And then this part is cool. We go from the upside down pool to the right side up pool, which is empty. Nobody's there to the room where we can hear them listening to the bangles to the soundtrack where the bangles are blasting at us, the audience, just kind of making these these switches. So just going to loop that back here. So in the upside down pool and the right side up pool, we're in the room here and the music they hear. And then we're the soundtrack music. All right. Number six, Jim Croyce's You Don't Mess Around With Jim. Now, I had to follow my own rules and I've got to pick a moment not just the track itself. And there's two pretty neck-and-neck neck moments. There is the second chapter of the second season in which Jim Hopper and Eleven are moving in to the cabin, and he puts this record on, and it's part of the cleaning montage. Uh, and the other one is the second episode of season three, when Hopper scares the living hell out of Mike to not come over for a day and lie about it to Eleven, and he's driving over to Joyce, and that's the one I'm going to choose. Hey, what's going on? Happily taking a bite of some cereal... Now, obviously, you can tell that I have a type of soundtrack moments that I love, which are the the blending of the diegetic and non-diegetic sounds. So diegetic is the music that the characters can hear in world or actively participating in, uh, you know, within the world of the show and non-diegetic being the song that we, the audience, are hearing over the, the, the visuals. And when it blends together, when it kind of go, does both or goes from one to the other, I love that. And this is a great one. First, I love as Hopper, so we hear the, the track, you know, while he's eating the cereal. Hopper is not hearing it at that point. We cut to him when he is hearing the song. He's actively listening to the song in the car and singing along. And I love, oh, I just love David Harbour's choice of Hopper in his happy place singing just brutally off key, you know, at a rabbit you know, just, and then when he's just not eating, da, 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 you know, that is just such a great representation of what a normally emotionally repressive man in the 80s might sound like when he does loosen up a bit in his car and belts out this song because he's in a great mood. Uh, I gotta think that this song makes a third appearance in Stranger Things at some point in season four or season five, probably season five, uh, to complete the trilogy uh, of, of Jim Hopper's um, Happy Times. All right. Number five. Thanks, Obi-Wan. Now you're anticipating my needs. All right. Number five is a double, a double, two songs. Cindy Lauper's Time After Time 
and stings every breath you take. So I know this is cheating, but we're going to the end of season two, chapter eight, the gate, or chapter nine, the gate, and the snowball, the snowball epilogue. Um, and I've heard, I've heard the joke that the entirety of the season two budget was spent on getting these two songs into the snowball. And they truly do play these songs like almost the entire way through. So they get a good bang for their buck. Um, and it adds legitimacy to the scene. You know, dances didn't like play the affordable off-brand tunes. They played the giant hits of the day. And these were surely two of the slow songs that most high school, middle school dances played uh, without fail. Time after time, the Cindy Lauper um, track accompanies basically the mini movie with, with Dustin as he gets, you know, he's so confident, gets rejected by girl after girl, and Nancy saves the day. And then every breath you take accompanies you know mike and l and the the fulfillment of what was set up in the season one finale we can go to the snowball this is mike and l spent almost the entirety of season two apart so to get to this moment that we had mentioned in the season one finale want to dance i don't know how we can learn together you know that whole thing was was the resolution you know we we the audience really wanted that um but my real music moment for the snowball is actually the transition between time after time by Cindy Lauper and every breath you take by the police which does not happen inside of the snowball it happens outside of the snowball in the parking lot with Hopper and Joyce and I couldn't get the clip really for this podcast, you know, to be loud enough to do justice. But this is, this is in the background, in the distance, as they embrace uh, the transition between Dustin's Cindy Lauper mini-movie and Mike and Eleven's reunion track begins as uh, the actual transition happens as a mere echo from a distant gym as Hopper and Joyce embrace. It's a sweet touch that I really liked. Uh, all right, Obi, number four. Number four. Moby's When It's Cold, I'd Like to Die. Sticking with the finale, this is season one, chapter eight, The Upside Down. Um, so unlike the, you know, the happy moment from the season two finale that we just chose, season one finale with Moby's soundtrack is literally, I mean, this is soundtracking three kids dead. In like 90 seconds, <laughs> like 11 evaporates with a Demogorgon, for all we know, gone. Will is in the upside down, not breathing, and CPR is not working. And we're also flashing back to Hopper's daughter, Sarah, flatlining. And we're all, we're listening to Moby during this. There is something I really love about these strings. They're, they're not frantic. They're not climactic. They're not overly sentimental. They are steady. 
strong, mournful, and though they don't change, become triumphant. The CPR both gets Will breathing and Moby singing. Um, now that they are so steady, so good. They the Duffer Brothers clearly had this vibe in mind. Uh, you know, we will. I say clearly because we'll talk about the similarity of this progression and mood to the Eulogy soundtrack or the Eulogy score track um, in season two after after Bob's real death, as well as. The aftermath score track that plays, you know, through Hopper's letter at the end of, of, of Stranger Things 3, you know, 11 reads as a tearjerker. This kind of mood, this kind of ambiance and um, and sound with the strings and just the the spaciness of it is something they were clearly going for. Uh, Kathleen in our rewatch uh, podcast talked about not just the not just Eleven's death or Sarah's death or Will's near death, but also just the, the Karen Wheeler embracing Mike, you know, uh, in the parking lot there, that this song um, just brings together season one. And check out our rewatch podcast to hear what we think of it. Spoiler alert. Oh, we love it. All right. Number three. We're going to the Ghostbusters theme in Season 2, Chapter 2, Trick or Treat, Freak. Three, two, one. Wait, hold up the proton blaster. All right, and uh, turn to the light. You probably can predict one of the reasons why I love this, and it is because it... It's soundtracking our montage here, but it also becomes part of the world as the kids drive in to, to, um, to school on their bikes. Oh my God, I love this costume. Okay. All right, that's the last one. No, just one more, come on, please. Can I go to school? Wait, 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 okay, say, who are you gonna call? No. Right here. I just love that. I don't know if it's just the sensation of going from the soundtrack to them experiencing that same song in the world. It's just the it's just something that clicks in my brain. All right, I don't know that I got much more to say about that one other than that's one of my favorite musical moments of Stranger Things 1, 2, and 3. All right, number two. We're going to go back to early season one. Chapter two, the weirdo on Maple Street, the climactic scene with Joyce and the upside-down shenanigans that are going on in her house and the usage of the clashes, should I stay or should I go? And again, an yet another example where the character hears the song first and it be slowly becomes the soundtrack song. <laughs> Stereo has started for no reason in the other room. 
She opens the door and we and we hits the soundtrack. And of course, we know that she's going to uh, experience the the thing through the wall, and she's going to run out of the house and start up her car. And I love this because she gets in the car and she realizes, obviously, this is somehow connected to her son. She heard him on the phone that fried. She So she can't abandon her son. But also, you know, she is faced with a giant moving wall and might want to flee the scene. Um, so she's literally faced <laughs> with the question of whether she should stay or go. <laughs> it's kind of amazing to me that this song was recorded in 1981 and it took until 2016 for someone to use this in the context of a horror film decision point. All right. Number one. We're going to go to season three, episode three, The Case of the Missing Lifeguard, and the final scene where the flayed Billy and Heather are having dinner with Heather's parents, who have not yet been flayed. Max and Eleven have just list, uh, just left there, and the song that they are playing on their record is "American Pie" by Don McLean. Is everything all right? Yes, everything's fine. Your sister really didn't want to stay. No, she's just not. You know, really a people person. No, I just don't like the idea of them out there. So I probably don't have to mention it again, but it's playing on the record, and it's soon going to be a part of the soundtrack. I also love how this song is kind of a representation of, it seems so innocent, but it's actually kind of about a lost collective innocence, you know, as a, as a country. You know, we, we, when the day the music died, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, Big Bopper. Janet? Janet? I love the way the verse has been going here. It's been perfectly aligned so that the course is going to come right after Heather's dad's scream, which is actually kind of in tune. Let's listen. I'm really sorry about this, Daddy, but it'll all be over soon. I promise. <laughs> And the storm overtakes the great song of American Pie. That is the top 10 soundtrack moments from Stranger Things 1, 2, and 3. I've got another top 10 list for you, so stick with me here. I did say it was going to be an hour. Top 10 score moments. Stranger Things score that Kyle Dixon Michael Stein compositions. And again, I'll be choosing a specific moment for each one of these and not just going through the top 10 tracks in general that I like off of the, the score. Um, well, let's begin. Obi, start the counter back up at 10. Number 10. The theme. The Stranger Things Theme. And I thought about putting this, putting this at number one, but then that might have seemed like kind of a cop-out because that might leave a bad taste in our faithful podcast listeners' mouths um, because, you know, you listen all the way and then number one is just the theme, you know, but I also didn't want to put it in the middle. So anyway, uh, 
and the moment, because uh, I said I'm going to be picking specific moments, is the first iteration of the theme. Season one, chapter one, the vanishing of Will Byers. After the second scene in which Will goes into the shed and vanishes, we get this theme and it sets the tone it's such a cool bit of music perhaps i was too harsh on the season one trailer for not showing us the music because when this was revealed it was the hook it was i think everyone sat up right there and went oh what do we have here what is this this isn't what you would expect from pure nostalgia point you would think john williams and we may bow down to the one true king of john williams you know, they uh, Kyle Dixon, Michael Stein certainly wouldn't um, take any offense to me saying John Williams blows these guys out of the water, blows everyone out of the water. But what what Dixon and Stein have that brings something so new is the sounds themselves, this vintage equipment that they use, which is ironic because in the 80s they wanted to be digital. Stein and Dixon want to use the 70s equipment that the 80s people were probably like, oh man, we don't get to use a computer, we got to use this. So anyway, it's the sounds that they get out of these Prophet 5 synths and these Melotons and stuff like that. So the theme. They love to do this, but this is just a arpeggio picking between the, the C7th chord. So that arpeggio, one of the things that also makes it kind of feel uneasy is that the, the bass, you know, the, the lowest synth is playing kind of the, the quote unquote wrong note, not the home note. So if you're playing the chord of C, you know, it's made up of three notes, C, E, and G, and it's playing E. The bass note is hitting E, which is the middle one, whereas normally you would think it would hit the, the home one, which would be C. And of course, just the very un-80s percussion of that dry heartbeat uh, uh, bass drum there. All right. Number nine. Number nine score. The straight rendition of the Upside Down. So the one that we hear largely in season one and variations of throughout the series. So we certainly get a lot of that in other places. We get that, that wobble as we talk about the modulation. Um, you know, it's like it's being the, the synthesizer note is being bent, you know, up or down, sharper or flat. It gives that sense of unease, out of tune. And that just that effect, you know, that that modulation and that kind of one two three four you know that kind of walking there is used even in, in in just many other score tracks and it's just in the place it basically represents like the upside down is somewhat present here uh, but the moment is that i will choose is season one chapter six when nancy is describing her experience in the upside down to jonathan it's I like it because, first of all, we don't hear 
the Upside Down theme while Nancy's actually in the Upside Down when she goes through that tree. Um, we hear it when she's describing it later. And I really like that. Number eight. Let's go just one more episode. Chapter seven of season one, The Bathtub, and the track called Time for a 187. So I detailed this one a lot in our rewatch uh, for, the, for the bathtub episode, the uh, bathtub chapter. This just frenetic stretch of notes builds up over the course of four minutes from when they're suspecting the lab is after them to when they confirm the lab is after them to when they are running away from the lab vans, when they are trapped by the lab vans, and when Eleven flips the van over their heads. So let's listen as it just, it's just at the pitch moment, the van flips over their heads. So what makes this a great score moment for me is not just, you know, the the and the four minutes of of sort of build up and attention and anticipation. It is the release as well. When the crash happens, what do we hear right after it? Just bike chains, like almost nothing. We go completely silent, just the chains of their bikes riding down the hill, and then this sort of ethereal sweet little computerized synthesizer. It's just that moment of relief is so well-earned, uh, which makes it a great score moment for me. Number seven. Back to season three, chapter two, The Mall Rats, where we had Cold as Ice as one of the soundtrack moments. And of course, that episode also has the Madonna, you know, Material World montage but before that montage, there's a different one where Mike and Lucas are trying to decide what to do about Mike's troubles with Eleven, and Eleven and Max are trying to do or decide what to do about Eleven's troubles with Mike. And, you know, they're just kind of teenage kids t- talking, and the boys are with the boys, and the girls are with the girls. So we get this score track called Boys and Girls. And listen to the... There's really two synthesizers here, a higher floatier, bouncier, peppier one, presumably representing the girls who have decided to forget about boys, and then a lower, more hesitant, more stumbly synthesizer uh, representing the boys who are not taking such a carefree approach to this. The hesitation, the hitch in the lower, quote-unquote, boy synth, the bump, 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 you know, that's what makes it for me, is that just sort of the differing rhythms, and they kind of come together, they kind of go apart throughout the throughout the score track, and it's over a montage, so it's, it's that's the moment. All right, 
Number six, score moments of Stranger Things 1, 2, and 3. Season 1, Chapter 6, The Monster. The score track, She'll Kill You, which plays at the climax of that one as the, as the bullies, uh, Troy, have cornered Mike and Dustin in the quarry. He's got Dustin. He's going to put the knife you know, to his teeth if Mike doesn't jump. Mike does jump, and Eleven saves him, breaks the arm of the bully. And, and Dustin, of course, the track gets the name from one of my favorite lines, pro- probably my favorite line in the entire series. That's right. You better run. She's our friend, and she's crazy. She'll kill you. You hear me, you sons of bitches? She'll kill you! (laughs) Uh, What I love about this song, and this song is also used in the climax of chapter four, uh, The Body, but in chapter six, you know, it's much more triumphant, and it uses this gated reverb drum that is very 80s, something that the Stranger Things soundtrack kind of avoids, even though it's sort of the, the hallmark sound of the 1980s. So when they do use it, when they use any, any drums or any percussion, it's really effective. When they do use it, uh, it's really impactful. I love the wobble as well. And of course, the the pop of that snare drum, you know, it is kind of ironic because Dixon and Stein use, they record to tape, analog, they use these vintage synths trying to get a warmer sound, but that sound, that like 80s pop snap, that sound likely does not exist uh, unless the the recording industry starts to go digital there and they, you know, they, they, it really is sort of a computerized decision to record and stop recording based on the, based on the sound, but we won't get into all that. All right. Number five, let's bring it down a bit to 11's theme. And the moment I specifically took is the season two, chapter one, when Mike is just looking at the empty fort, you know, the, the beginning of their season long separation, um, I took this as kind of the most overt, you know, representation of Eleven's theme. And I, I love this melody, uh, it, you know, I associate it with Eleven because I just think of it like as if it is a child genius sitting down at the piano for the first time with one finger, a little hesitant, but picking out these beautiful notes. Kind of like a breath here. Not sure how well it comes across, you know, over the the podcast, but if you play that track and really turn it up, there's just this warm tape fuzz kind of around it, almost as if, you know, there's like a wire that is just not not quite plugged in. Um, I really like that touch. Okay, Obi-Wan, hit us. We got we got about 10 minutes here, eight minutes. Number four, the Mirkwood theme. Back to the sauna test, season three, chapter four. If there's one thing that Dixon and Stein can claim like true superiority over as as any any scorers that I've ever heard, 
It's the sounds they get. And there are so many. I mean, listen to the Rewatch podcast and the music moments that I do. There's a couple moments where I talk about how many different sounds are kind of combining to make this one sound that you're, that you're kind of subconsciously listening to. And here's a good example. The Mirkwood theme, in, is it really anything too special as a melody? No, but just what is this sound? You know, it's just this, this analog synthesizer bad guy moment, and it's covered in just dripping electricity, and it's got this mournful blood and bone within it. Uh, you know, I don't know how to explain it better than that. Let's listen. course the the persistent boom, 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 boom. and then i don't just the way that that synth comes in it's like you know it, it's like it's bursting forth and to represent you know the the upside down is sort of this cold calculating theme with the with the modulation this has much more emotion to it there it's it's an angrier dirtier bloodier version of the of the bad guy which fits uh what we see in Stranger Things 3. Okay. Number three. Let's go to season two, chapter six, The Spy, as Will sends in the lab soldiers into a trap, and we hear the track called Soldiers. Again, so many great, unique sounds that you just can't get on a computer. They're, again, they're using vintage equipment. Sometimes they can't even replicate the sounds that they, that they have achieved, uh, which is what part of what makes this score awesome. But there's so many things going on. We get that gated reverb pop. You know, this is sort of season two's version of She'll Kill You. Uh, I like that this one, you know, it also has some twang to it, some modulation. You know, we have that. I also like that there's this driving bass. But what I like about it the most, and I, I talked to Kathleen about this on the on the rewatch, is the way that we get sort of this an, another gated effect, this hiss. It's like beep boop, hiss cut. Beep boop, hiss cut. So listen to it again. The the beep boop is cut, like it's 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 four four rhythm points. One of them is the is the hiss from the from the second beep, and one of them is the hiss stopping. Beep boop is cut. All right, number two. You know we were getting to this one. Going to move two episodes down the line, still in Stranger Things 2, to Chapter 8, The Mind Flare, The Death of Bob, and the track, the score track called Eulogy.
just another example of how these songs don't live in a vacuum. You know, we gravitate to this song when we hear it, partly because Bob Newby is a superhero played to perfection by Sean Astin, but he, he wasn't a superhero, you know? He was a middle manager type at a Radio Shack who did heroic things. Um, but the score track itself really is feels like Stein and Dixon's shot at doing the the vibe of Moby's When It's Cold, I'd Like to Die. I like to think the Duffer brothers, you know, wanted this in season one and they just, the Dixon Stein didn't have it yet. And then they, they made it here. They add something over it. It's very similar to, to Moby's vibe. Even the, the chord progression is kind of similar to it. But they add what is the real hook with this, this synth vocorder. You know, I believe it's, it's just one of those tubes that you can breathe into, you can hum into, um, that, that plugs into your synth, you know, like Peter Frampton does it for the guitar. This is a beautiful melody. And we're not, we haven't been talking about, besides Eleven's theme, we haven't been talking a lot about these beautiful compositions. You know, Dixon Stein, more about sound, the sound they get. But this one, there is something about this melody that is special. Maybe it, you know, maybe it is partly infused by our love for the character of Bob, but if it is, so be it, because these things don't exist in a vacuum. All right, Obi, our last one. Thanks for sticking with us, everybody. Number one, score track of Stranger Things 1, 2, and 3 to the finale of season one. When everything is sorted and we finally are back with the kids playing Dungeons and Dragons after all they've been through, getting that just that moment of childhood that we, you know, we don't know. It's drenched in nostalgia. You never know when your childhood is going to end. And this score track is the fuzziest and warmiest, what warmiest, warmest of them all. There is that that floaty little underneath it. Um, this is one of the stronger score tracks that that Dixon and Stein have because this this melody is you know could be a hit, it could be a pop song. Oh, what a show! What a show! And we are clocking in under an hour. I'm proud of myself. Honorable mention to Kids Two, which starts our. Um, our show, which is another version of, of kids, especially kids too, when they are introduced, uh, when Lucas and Elle apologize to each other in the junkyard. Um, we're gonna let's end with that, might as well, and then we'll see you after season four.